Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Bloemfontein is Judge President of the Supreme Court of Appeal, Justice Mandisa Meyer. Notably, South Africa's first female judge president of the Supreme Court of Appeal. She was also the country's first female deputy judge president of the Supreme Court of Appeal. Justice Meyer's career in the legal profession has spanned almost three decades. Some of her former roles include being a high court judge, acting judge at the Labour Court, in the Supreme Court of Appeal, the Constitutional Court, the Supreme Court of Namibia, the Appeal Court of Lesotho, being a judge as well as Deputy President of the Supreme Court of Appeal and now being Judge President of the Supreme Court of Appeal. Her appointment to this position elevates her to the third highest position in the judicial branch after the Chief Justice and Deputy Chief Justice. Welcome to the show, Justice Meyer. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Amalia. Justice Meyer, approximately a year ago, we were going to have an interview Mm. and... I must say that I'm quite glad that we we didn't have it then because when I reflect on my research, at the time I read there were announcements saying Justice Mandisa Meyer made history as the first female to be appointed as Deputy President of Supreme Court of Appeal. And now you're hitting the headlines again with the new picture and a new record as the first woman to be appointed to the highest office of the Supreme Court of Appeal since the establishment of the court in 1910. And I'll read a quote from Jacob Zuma stating her appointment to this position elevates her to the third highest position in the judicial branch after the Chief Justice and Deputy Chief Justice. So can you please share with us a little bit more about your position as Judge President of the Supreme Court of Appeal? Hmm. Well, uh, let me start here. The core of judicial work is the same whether one sits as a judicial officer in the district court, the high court, the constitutional court, or any other court for that matter. It's simply to hear and decide cases. Now, the only difference about my new position now is that instead of just hearing and deciding cases, I have to ensure I've assumed responsibility for the overall running of my court, the Supreme Court of Appeal, ranging from allocating work for my colleagues to just seeing to it that the administrative side of things in our registrar's office, everything really is done properly. So that, that, that's, that, that, that. so I've, in addition to, become, to becoming a judge sitting in court, I've become an administrator as well. I mean, that's the... The, 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 the simplest way in which I, I can explain it, I've become an administrator as well. And often that is quite a burden on the administration side to make sure that the ship is sailing smoothly. Indeed. Administration, as we all know, is relentless. It's relentless. It, it never ceases. But uh, well, someone has to do the work. And we're glad that it has landed now in the role of a lady such as yourself. Justice Meyer, referring to some of your decisions, the Johannesburg Bar Council said these decisions demonstrate her excellent grasp of the law, 
including constitutional law, in wide-ranging and complex issues. Her clear sensitivity to the vulnerability of women and children emerges from these decisions and has received support from the Constitutional Court. Her knowledge of the law and her ability to apply it makes her an asset to our judiciary. Your professional achievements have already broken glass ceilings, which paves the way for other women to follow in your footsteps. Can you share with us some of the goals that you want to accomplish in your role? Well... Let me start with the collective objective of the judiciary, our judiciary, which is to ensure that all South Africans have access to justice, especially having regard to our history. You know, not everyone. In fact, that's an understatement. A majority of our people, South Africans, do not have access to justice because they simply cannot afford to litigate and uh, vindicate, defend their rights. So that is what we are all concerned with primarily. But my special focus is the diversification of the bench, that is the judiciary, which is demanded really by our constitution. And uh, diversification, especially in terms of gender, because we still have very few women judges in the South African judiciary. So I'm looking to ensure that women, South African women, are adequately represented in the South African judiciary. That, that, that's, that's my simple, my, my, my single goal. It's a very noble goal, and I would imagine that that would be part of the legacy that you'd like to leave behind as, as your stamp on what you'd achieved. Indeed. Staying on that vein, a few years ago, South Africa's Women Empowerment and Gender Equality Bill lapsed, and its principal aim was to promote and achieve equality for women across the board. What do you think about legislation in relation to closing gender gaps, whether that is in regard to pay, promotion, or position? The question whether there is need for such legislation is, one of policy, which I, I don't think uh, would be proper for a judge, especially a sitting one, to, to answer for various reasons. But wearing a woman's cap, I'm also a woman, I'm not just a judge, and I think I have a right to, 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 to answer it. I would say a big yes, definitely. That kind of legislation would go a long way towards redressing, you know, the injustice that is still perpetuated against women in the workplace, not just in Africa, but universally. I mean, we just had a very surprising, shocking story about what's happening in Google in, in, the, in America, in the first world, where one would have hoped that, uh, you know, things uh, are, are, are conducted properly. One would like to think that uh, that is an enlightened, a progressive field. We learn that universally women are still on the back foot, even when they are actually, you know, well um, qualified to be in the positions they hold, they do not get paid. They don't get the same treatment in the workplace as, as their male counterparts. So that legislation would be a good place to start. We simply cannot leave it to the conscience of those in power, the decision makers, to decide that decide and ensure that women are accorded equal treatment in the workplace. 
And how legislation for me is one thing, but the challenge that seems to be consistently out there is implementation of legislation. Yes. Given your experiences, how do you think we could go about implementation? Look, it is always a challenge, but uh, I have a, a, a ready answer in the South African context, the, the Employment Equity Act. We have seen it actually work, and people do not hesitate with the help of, 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 of NGOs and, 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 and others with the necessary resources. They don't hesitate to go to court to ensure that what the law actually entitles them is given to them. So I don't think it would be, you know, we should be feel, feel pessimistic about about um, having such law put into place. And uh, once it is, the machinery is there, let's all help one another, you know, educate our people, let those in the lower ranks of, 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 the, of the job market know that there is such legislation and when their rights are threatened in any way, help them to use the courts to vindicate them. So making the law work for us and being proactive about that that when someone does come across an issue which contravenes their rights or that they they feel that an injustice has been, has incurred, that they take matters forward accordingly. Mm. In all my interviews throughout the different shows, there's one topic which keeps reoccurring and that's the fact that real change requires us to put an end to gender discrimination and sexism. And similarly, I found in one of your works where you spoke about, and I quote, the critical problem of inherent sexism in the legal profession, which mirrors many other sectors across our society. In your opinion, how should this type of discrimination be corrected? Well, I will use the same answer I just, we just touched upon now, legislation. Let's put legislation in place, relevant legislation, and make it work for us. Make it work for us. Mm. You hold three university degrees, uh, BPROC from the University of Transkei, an LLB from the University of Natal, and an LLM from Duke University in the United States, where you were also a Fulbright Scholar. Can you share with us your experiences across the different institutions from an education perspective? Uh, well, in the legal field, um, I'm, I'm just casting my mind back now. It's, 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 it's been a, a while since it's I was uh, It's a good few years ago. <laughs> I, I, I recall that... Um, Throughout um, throughout my my educational career, there was no shortage of women students students in my classes, and uh, women were always the brightest lot, as you know, as as, as we would all expect. It, it, it is a scientific fact that women tend to do much better than their male counterparts in the classroom. But uh, the challenges I can recall now, and uh, this, this is not just isolated to, the, to my universities in, in, in South Africa, but in, in the U.S. as well, was that uh, I, I don't want to say one was subjected to, 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 to sexism, but 
the lecturers never i i do distinctly recall that there, there would be those male lecturers who, who were in the majority by the way there, there were very few women professors in, in 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 all institutions up to the one in, in university in america they would never give the women students you know the, the same attention the, the same time in the classroom as they did the the, the male students and uh, one had to fight their way to, you know, to ensure, to raise their hand. And if there's a question that is, 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 is posed in class, you raise your hand high until the teacher points you out to, 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 to answer it. And uh, I think that um, kind of treatment that um, I received then, one finds in the workplace as well, and not just in my field, which is male-dominated, that women tend to become invisible. You know, they are not... If if you are sitting in a a group of... among a group of colleagues, for example, and legal issues are discussed, you will say something, raise an idea, and no one will pay it any attention. A few seconds later, a male colleague repeats the very same thing you just said, and suddenly, you know, it's a light bulb moment and everybody gets animated. And it's just that kind of, 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 of treatment that one has had to, to you know, to, to, to fight from the classroom to the workplace, always having to fight, you know, to make yourself to be seen, just to be seen, and then be heard and accorded you know, respect for, for your views, which, by the way, would have been worth something. But that's the best way I can I can put it, Dr. Mali. I don't know if I've, I've answered the, the, the question coherently or it makes any sense. I think it's given your your perspective and the journey that women face as a reality and replicating things which have happened not just within the classroom but also being real-life concerns in the workplace to increase the visibility of women. Yes. Given that, that experience that you've lived through, how do you think we can overcome it? How do you think that women can become more visible and that their opinions and the work that they do are taken more seriously? You know, putting women in positions of authority is very important, especially to address that problem. Because if you have a woman running an institution, then she will ensure and if she does not have the consciousness to do that, then it's our business, our collective business, to constantly remind her that she has a particular responsibility to uplift other women. That woman is in a position to increase the number of women in that uh, particular environment. And the more women you have, then, you know, just by, by she, I've, I've, I've ex- experienced this. Numbers do tend to, to have effect. The more numbers, the more women you have in any environment, the, the more they are seen and, 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 you know, they are seen. I, I can't put it any higher than that. It's a physical presence. Yes. That matters a great lot. And it, it would, of course, not just be women, any woman, but women who can add value in that particular, mm. you know, setup. 
And I suppose having more women in these places, it's also the, the fact that, A, it's demonstrating that women are capable of doing these roles. And the visibility factor also shows to other people, whether it's a younger woman who aspire to emulate or to indeed the men folk that are around, that women can do these, these roles. Yes, it has a very important psychological effect. When other women out there see that, my goodness, here's another woman doing uh, something that we did not think women could do before, and she's doing it and doing it well, it's inspiration for them. I think building female leadership capacity is vitally important for the future of women in our country and indeed across the continent. It is, and across the world. Yes, and having them in positions of power and also, I'd say, positions of, of prominence. And it does surprise me how few countries have had female presidents. Mm-hmm. How do you see female leadership in Africa? And, and do you think that more countries are ready for women presidents? I, I just find it tragic that you should be asking me that question today in this century. But yes. The simple answer is yes. And the ones that have been, I think, have made tremendous achievements. So the one who comes to mind immediately is Ellen Sirleaf Johnson of, of Liberia, who has exactly. now stepped down who, on her role. Who has done a wonderful job, you know, running a country that had been ravaged by, by, by war and, and, and strife. And she's done amazing mm-hmm. things. And on top of that, having the Ebola epidemic and coming right. Yes. My goodness, human memory, I'd even forgotten about that. You are listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band. Also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Judge President of the Supreme Court of Appeal, Justice Mandisa Maya. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Justice Maya, today you have become a role model. We were talking about role modeling a few moments ago, providing evidence to many women and girls in South Africa and indeed across the continent that with hard work and personal sacrifice, everything can be achieved. You gave us a few glimpses in terms of some of the challenges that you'd experienced on the invisibility uh, of that, that women experience. Can you share with us what your advice would be to young girls who want to follow in your footsteps, whether that's through the educational route that they need to take or some of the rich advice that you've learned through the wisdom of your experience? I don't have any new ideas. It is still hard work and determination, Dr. Amalia, that gets one anywhere, anywhere at all in all walks of life. But women being women, we know, experience the kind of challenges that they do. So um, support becomes key. And that is why it is very important for all women to support one another. I have found my my experience has been that there is nothing more valuable than being supported. Whether it is by a mere word of encouragement for those who can't afford anything more, up to 
making sure that one uses their authority, their power, to uplift other women if they're in a position to, to do so. So, cliche, hard work and uh, determination, believing that self-belief, I forgot, self-belief is, is very important. One needs to constantly remind themselves that they can achieve anything if they put their mind to it. It is true. So having that focus and drive to, to strive for your success, yes. regardless of what happens. Regardless of the challenges, and there will be many. There are many challenges on the road to success. We were talking about perceptions and I guess in a way the way that men are judged differently to women and, and women are judged differently to men. And I recall there was an interesting study by McKinsey which raised issues of likability bias, which says that success and likability are positively correlated for men, but negatively correlated for women. So, in other words, if a woman is competent, she doesn't seem nice enough, but if she seems nice, she's considered less competent. And often this bias surfaces in the way in which women are described and it affects their performance reviews and and their promotional capabilities. Then we have, on the other hand, that when a woman asserts herself, she's often called aggressive, ambitious, Mm -hmm. or out for herself. But yet, when a man does the same thing, he's seen as confident and strong. And as a result of these types of double standards, women continuously face penalties in the workplace. What's your opinion on the subject? Look, unfortunately, those are the double standards that we have to contend with. But I would still urge um, women just to be themselves, just to be themselves, and let people take you as you are or not take you at all. And I've learned that um, if you do your work well, People tend to accept you and they they see the results. Ultimately, they will accept you. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's just unfortunate that we we have to go to experience this unfairness, you know, before our real work can actually be appreciated. But it is what it is. But my own um, practice is to just be myself. And we, we have... Fortunately for us, we are naturally good managers. And I think ultimately that just shines through. We are able to manage situations far better than any other individual on on, on the planet. And that, at the end of the day, wins the day. So it's playing into your strengths? Yes. You don't have to to try to, to behave like a man or try to be what the men around you expect you, demand you to be, just your own self. And that's it. True. And you having can't be anything other than that in any event. Yes, and having the, the tenacity to stick things out. So once it's almost having overcome the hurdles, the initial approvals, disapprovals, and then, as you said, your work can speak for itself. For itself. Another subject that I find keeps reoccurring is that our working world is designed around what I'd almost term as men's hours, 
Whereas society, we could potentially be losing half of our best multitaskers from the workforce due to the traditional expectations that women are required to do. Yes. So reforming their timetables according to family needs. Don't you think in the 21st century it's about time that something has to be done to restructure in order to accommodate women's multiple roles? It is about time. And that is one of the things that we are trying to achieve in the judiciary. But women, women's special needs are identified and accorded, you know, the attention they deserve. And I think um, if we make enough noise, and we are, we will achieve what we want. And on a practical level, how, how would you see that being implemented? Is it in terms of uh, flexi time? Flex, flexi time is, 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 one, is one obvious example. And the, the, in, in, in my type of work, um, we are fortunate because judges work on flexi time in, in any event, although there are times when you know, one's uh, family responsibilities will interfere with their with the usual working schedule, and then it is then that the need arises for special consideration to be given to those needs. And I can think of an an, an example, uh, and this is a question that has arisen in in, in 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 judges' interviews, you know, time and time again. A mother who has young children. A judge who has young children, and uh, one of, of of the judge's tasks is to do circuit circuit court duty, which is traveling to the outlying areas of our country to take justice to the, to those uh, parts of the country, and just make it easier for those communities, you know, to to access justice, rather than travel at, at great expense, which most of our people cannot afford you know, to, to, to go and seek help in, in the bigger centers. Now, you have this woman judge who has young children, uh, say uh, she's working, her, her, seat, her court seat is, is Johannesburg, the Johannesburg High Court, and she's expected to do circuit court duty in some far-flung um, area outside Johannesburg. What is going to happen to her children when she's gone for two weeks, you know, at the least, or two months at, at most, and uh, we have suggested that we, we have pushed for judges, president, the heads of court, to, you know, realize those needs and accord them special treatment. If a woman judge has young children, do not send her to far off places. I mean, those are simple things one can do. Just make sure when you allocate work that you give her more work you know, in places where she, she will find it easy to commute and spend, you know, time with the family on a daily basis or as often as, as, as she needs. Though putting those measures in place, and uh, in my profession, we are doing that, pushing for, 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 for those things, and uh, we, we, we are seeing uh, success. And it seems to be such common sense. Yes, but, but obviously, you know, we want things to be balanced and that everyone's got fair opportunity and how they, they deal with their, their workloads. Yeah. Reflecting on your career, what would you say has been 
one of the most significant cases that you've presided over or seen a, a significant change emanate from? Ooh. I always find that question difficult to, to answer because uh, each litigant who goes to the court of law, you know, views their cases. It's usually a matter of life and death for them, whether it's a litigant facing eviction or, you know, uh, a litigant who who is a victim of, 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 of crime, a rape victim or, or some such uh, victim. But um, I have found uh, the most, the, the cases that, you know, touched me the most, that uh, exercised my conscience in addition to my mind the most, those uh, in the criminal law sphere, especially cases which uh, cases which involve violence against women and, 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 and children. In the current climate in South Africa where women and girl children are fair game to you know to all sorts of assault, especially sexual assault. And uh, I would say it is those cases collectively where one was able, you know, to secure, to, to help the state secure a conviction and impose a sentence that one hoped would send a message, hope against hope that would send a message to other would-be offenders out there not to perpetrate violence against uh, this vulnerable class of our communities. One has done many cases across the legal spectrum, you know, and mm. uh, I, I, I have not found them as, as, as important as, as, as this particular class of cases. And it does speak to your passion point in terms of upholding the law for women and driving through everything about making environments more, more conducive and more supportive for women, whether that is in the judiciary itself or the everyday lady on the street. Yes. Now, Justice Maya, we, we're starting to draw it towards the end of the, the program, and one of the questions I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields is about the factors that have contributed to their success. Yes. In your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to make you who you are today? Look, I, 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 I wish I had a... A, 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 a heart-rending story to to to, to share, but m- m- mine is, is very simple. I was just lucky to be born to two teachers who came from very humble origins and had used education, you know, as a tool to escape poverty and uh, a tool to uplift their communities. So they, from a young age, I and my five siblings, I come, I'm the eldest of a, a large uh, gag of, of, of children. We were taught the value of education, and uh, that's, that's what nurtured me, and uh, it, it, it was the be and all. We were told that when you're a child, you should be at school, cultivate a love for books, and uh, that's it. 
no boyfriends, nothing, uh, until you're old enough, whatever that meant. And then from from school, it's it, it, it's work. So I was raised in that kind of background, and it, 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 it helped me. Well, with three degrees under your belt, we can see that influence very clearly. Yes. <laughs> can you share with us some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? The, the one moment that stands out in, in my memory is um, it happened during the riots of 1976. I was 12 years old um, doing uh, what was called Standard 6, Grade 8 then. Uh, and we were forced, we, we had had rumblings about what had happened in, in Soweto, the student uprising where... Uh, School children had been, you know, um, shot at, assaulted by the police because they were protesting against uh, a policy that sought to compel all schools in the country to teach children in the African language, which we viewed then as the language of, of, of the oppressor, those who, who ran this oppressive regime at the time. And... Uh, Suddenly, we were taken out of the classroom by a, a group of older students, and when we got outside, we saw that we, there were hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of, of school children out there, and apparently a group of the older students had been going around the, the township. Uh, I was in Kingslamstown in the Eastern Cape. They had been going around the schools collecting children to form a protest in support of what was happening in, in Johannesburg. And um, my brother, who was six years younger than me, was only six at the time, and he, was, he had just started grade one at a nearby school. I saw him the, the way all sort, you know, all sort of school children, young and, and from primary school to, to, to high school, even the youngest, and my little brother was there, and I think it was a very lucky coincidence that I was able just to see him like that. So I ran to him and grabbed him by the arm, but then we protested, and uh, as luck would have it, you know, the march went past our home, and we managed to to slip away unnoticed and, 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 and went into the house. And just minutes later, the police attacked, and a lot of those pupils, were injured. And uh, that moment, you know, has has stayed with me. I was young then to compre- comprehend what was actually happening. And I, I, I got to understand much later. And that moment combined with just the ordinary life of a black South African in South Africa, you know, what propelled me towards the direction I took, really, it was not an easy, sorry, it was not a, a, a difficult decision for me to choose law because my generation had grown up in the truth of apartheid, daily seeing, you know, the injustices that were being perpetrated against black South Africans. And uh, those, those were pivotal moments of my life, especially that day in, in 1976 when we were taken out of the classroom to join the struggle against oppression. 
It sounds like it was a very poignant, powerful memory that came through and was a real catalyst in terms of you becoming who you are today to to drive change, to ensure that injustices don't happen, that we have appropriate legislation in place and that the wrong laws are negated. Yes. And now, lastly, Justice Meyer, in closing our conversation today, could you please share a few words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on to young women and girls that are listening to us on the continent? Well, let's see. I will just remind all women, young and old, that we as women have proved time and time again that no one is stronger, no one is more resilient than a woman. There is absolutely nothing that a woman cannot do, cannot achieve, and we should never let anyone tell us otherwise. What we must do now is to just support one another in any and every way we can, as women, because we can't expect men to give us this equality we are clamoring for. Yes, there is a responsibility to do that, but I think time has come for us to take it by force. And we must encourage one another along the way as we try to, to, to achieve that. As I said earlier, we all have the capacity to, you know, to help one another as women. If, even if you are poor, you have nothing, you, you can encourage another woman if you see that they have the potential to do something, to achieve something. And if you, are like me, have been lucky enough to get into a position of authority, a position of power to bring about a change, not just for, you know, women, but everybody around me, then use that authority to uplift others. So women must remember that, you know, they can achieve anything that they put their mind to, and have a special responsibility to support one another. That is my message. Thank you. I think it's a very important message, the social responsibility aspect, and to not just be in it for yourself, but to look out for others. Yes, that is very important. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Malia. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And we have been talking to South Africa's first female appointed judge president of the Supreme Court of Appeal, Justice Melissa Meyer.